Welcome to the Pursuit of Prosperity podcast. I'm Lance Wakefield. I have a very special guest today. This is Kevin Burgess. Um, he is an executive coach, at least that's how I met him. And uh, he has one of the most fantastic sales and communications trainings I've ever seen in my life. So thank you so much for coming, my Kevin. My pleasure. Uh, it's great to see you. Likewise. We've known each other for like six years. I learned this training in 2017, and I have never seen it anywhere else. Uh, that, that, that surprises me because it, it. I wish the model was original with me. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm not that smart. Um, but it's been around, man, probably close to 50 years. Really? Yeah. Yeah, pretty simple construct. But it's been around. And, and a lot of people have kind of grabbed it and morphed it into a bunch of different versions. You know, they, they dress it up in a bunch of different costumes, yeah. but at the core, it's still the same thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's incredible that understanding how someone communicates, it penetrates deep inside of their psyche and like yeah. how they process, how they make yeah. decisions. And it's fascinating that it's linked, but once you understand that it's linked, it like opens doors that could never open otherwise. So I, I was introduced to the model by a former colleague, Dr. Darren Martin, who was a psychologist. He, he actually introduced me to the model. Uh, man, who it's got to be close to 20 years ago now. And I've been training that model. So at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a marketer. I'm a storyteller. I'm a strategist. Uh, in my nine to five, I'm the chief marketing officer of AE Perkins, which is a, a holding company. We've got a few brands as part of the family, most of it in the fintech, medical payments, human capital management space. Um, but in my heart of hearts, I'm a storyteller, mm -hmm. which I think great marketing is storytelling. Absolutely. Uh, for several years in a row, I've, I've done a little workshop at SMU for their trial law clinic, and it started with a speech I gave. Uh, which I cribbed the title from from a Greek philosopher. Basically, the, the, the title of the talk was Storytellers Rule the World, and they absolutely do. Mm -hmm. They absolutely do. You know, we're, we're headed into an election season, and everybody's like, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? I can tell you who it's going to be. It's going to be whoever tells the best story. Yep. By the way, it doesn't have to be a true story. Yeah. <laughs> it just has to be the one that resonates deeply. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm a marketer. I'm a strategist. I'm a story, storyteller. And so language fascinates me. Because that is the that is the fundamental building component of a great story, and so when I was introduced to this communication model, I, I was instantly intrigued. Because the promise of the model is based on someone's behavior, you can watch them, and based on their behavior, you know what quote language they speak. I'm not talking English, Spanish, Japanese. Mm -hmm. But the model posits that there's a finite number of languages spoken by every human being on the globe, regardless of age, gender, socioeconomic status. They're going to speak one of those core basic languages. And if you can identify it, and then you have a rudimentary understanding of that language, you can now communicate with them. That's basically the whole premise of and And what's so powerful about it is so simple. It's yeah. so simple. So th there's very large global consulting consortium that I used to do training for. And I'll never forget this. I have, they would, you know, fly 2000 of their highest performing individuals into a resort in Orlando for a week of training. And I would teach this model, you know, an eight hour class five times that week. 
So I'm on the plane coming home at the end of the week. And this guy comes in and he goes, hey, I, I was in your class. That was incredible. I'm like, thank you. He's like, my colleague, I was telling him about it, and they couldn't get in your class because we're already booked up. Could you explain it to him? So I walk down the plane, I get out a legal pad, and I'm drawing the model. Mm -hmm. And this, this other lady goes, hold on, hold on, I need another member of my team. Before you know, there's like 10 of us huddled in the middle of the plane. <laughs> and the stewardess comes down, she's like, folks, you gotta move. And then they're like, no, no, look at what this, and then the stewardess is like, you gotta get this other stewardess. And so I like give an impromptu class on an American Airlines flight back from Orlando. That's how simple and engaging it is. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it can be taught in a few minutes. And it can be understood in, in a few minutes. Oh, yeah. But then you could also spend dozens of hours yep. going deep, deep, deep. And I've, I've spent a few hours yeah. going deeper with you. But I can tell. It's one of those things. It's like a parable. Yep. It's like there is as many layers to this right. onion as you want, as you're willing to go. Right. As much work as you're willing to put in, it will give back out. Yeah. And you just keep unpacking it. And there's application to it. And, and yeah, it's, it's pretty cool stuff. What was fascinating to me is that by figuring out the communication style of someone, you can also understand what motivates them. Yeah. yeah. And when you understand what motivates them, you understand how to, I don't want to say like manipulate them at all, but you understand how to, how would you put it? Actually, so you, you bring you, up, you bring up a good point because every time I've ever taught this, this comes up it's somebody like, Hey Kevin, this is just manipulation. That's why when we do this training, we, we kind of really lean into that language metaphor because I grew up in Argentina. My parents were missionaries, moved there as a little kid. I learned to speak Spanish. Um, if I travel to Buenos Aires today and I get in a cab at Ezeiza Airport and I'm going to a hotel in downtown Buenos Aires, now I'm a native English speaker. If I speak to that man in his language so that we can both go where we need to go, am I being manipulative? Absolutely not. No, no. I'm, I'm speaking to him in a language he understands. And by the way, I'm taking myself out of the comfort zone of my language to move into his language so that he can have a better communication experience and we can both arrive at the destination we want to get to. That's not now. Can it be manipulated? Yes, everything can be manipulated. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, employers manipulate employees all the time with incentive plans and pay schedules and PTO and all the other levers. So anything, anything can be used, you know, in that way. But at its heart, is it manipulation? I don't think so at all. No, it's about I don't great either. It's, it's about great communication. It's persuasion, but it's it's, it it's more than persuasion. It's it's allow it's it's creating understanding. Absolutely. And understanding is something that's massively lacking in the world today. And if we can go outside of our comfort zone to speak someone's language, to create understanding, to me, that's the opposite of manipulation. That's like, that's, that's, that's closer to empathy, the manipulation. Yeah. Well, and, and, and there's, there's so much of, there's so much going on, you know, I call it same language, same words, different dictionary, right? You hear two people talking and they're using the same words, but there's entirely different meaning behind those totally. words. And the lexicon has gotten really, really perverted. And so anything that brings clarity to that is nothing but good. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it keeps getting more perverted. It's not yeah. getting better. And so I feel like it becomes 
my job to become better at communicating sure. to overcome those differences. Sure. Well, go go back to you know the the, the title of my little talk. Um, Storytellers rule the world. They they absolutely do, and I think you know it's hard to have a conversation that steers clear of politics these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I think one thing that's being understood in the political realm is language is the high ground, right? So in the military, you always want the high ground, right? You yeah. control the battlefield from there. Well, I think more and more there's this understanding language is the high ground. If I control the language, I control the conversation. If I decide what words mean, right, mm-hmm. that gives me incredible leverage. Uh, so I, I think leaders and business people have to understand this uh, and, and us understand also that in any conversation, there's very little agreement around the meaning of what's being said. Mm-hmm. There's, there's multiple things happening. There's what I say. There's what I intended it to mean. There is what you heard. There is the meaning you assigned to what I said. That's a lot going on. That's a lot going on. And I remember actually one thing you taught me that stuck with me. And I mean, this was six years ago and I have a good memory, but it's not that good. And you said the ultimate form of responsibility and communication is taking responsibility for what someone understands from what you say. That's exactly right. I can't tell you how many leaders I've coached, um, how many situations I've dealt with inside organizations. And inevitably somebody will say, there's well, Kevin, I told them. I told them, okay, but what did they understand? Because at the end of the day, if they walk away with something understood other than what you intended, that's on you. If you're going to take a high degree of ownership, mm-hmm. if you're going to take a high degree of responsibility. So how can a leader or an individual or a salesperson, how can they do a better job of making sure that what they intend to be communicated is what's received. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm a simple guy. <laughs> Matter of fact, I, I got a text yesterday from a business leader maybe asking me to do a consulting gig for their company. They're at 30 million, they wanna to go to 60 million over three years, so we, we may do something here. And he, he sent me a text and I, I actually showed it to my wife and I was like, hey, I, I want to make sure I'm hearing this right because I, I feel kind of insulted. And what he said was, um, we need simplicity and you deliver simplicity. <laughs> it's like, I'm not sure if I was complimented or if I was That's insulted definitely here. a compliment. I think so. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm a simple guy. I, I shoot straightforward through, through things. So he asked me, how can anyone communicating make sure that the person they're communicating with understands what they intended for them to understand. That's the question, right? Mm-hmm. Ask them. So, Ask them. So let's let's do that with me. Yeah. So, um, Kevin, I think you have a, a great jacket on today. What would I do next to make sure you heard me or understood? Kevin, and I, I would follow that. I, well, thank you, Lance. I appreciate that. Um, I really do. I would, If I was sitting in your chair, i then follow up with, Kevin, can you can you repeat back to me how you think I feel about your jacket? <laughs>
Hmm. Like, we, we overcomplicate stuff. Very simple. It's very simple. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't mean this as a religious aside, okay? Um, I was reading a business leader on Twitter the other day. He's like, I've abandoned all business books because I figured out all strategy is already in the Bible. I, I actually think that's true, and I think it's I think it's pretty fascinating that this guy who's an agnostic has figured that out. That's funny. Um, so, But I'm going to throw you a biblical quote, okay? Because okay. all that simplicity, it's there. Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. Pretty straightforward, right? Very straightforward. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. You don't have an understanding because you haven't asked. You don't have clarity because you haven't asked. You don't have rapport because you haven't asked. You don't have because you haven't asked. So if I want to make, if it's critical, if it's crucial, and by the way, we do this at a very sophisticated level. Um, how many companies out there right now are surveying their clients nonstop? Oh, it's it's annoying at this it, point. It's annoying. Yeah. But actually what they're doing is they're they're wanting to make sure that what we're saying is what's being heard. What yeah. we intended to say is what is actually being heard. That's why we're getting endless surveys. It's that constant ongoing temperature check of asking, hey, is this what you actually heard? So I, I think the easiest thing is just to ask. Hey, I want to make sure we're clear here. Can you tell me what you understood out of this exchange? Man, I, I feel like if if people did that, the level of and, and then you have to hear them, right? Yeah. So like if you meant what I what I communicated with your jacket is so simple, right? Yeah. Usually we're we're communicating subjects and ideas that are a little bit more complex than sure, that. Sure, of course. And so you lay out what you say, ask if it's understood, shut up, listen to what they say, and then once you've heard it all, then go back and if there was inconsistencies, absolutely do your best to and it's like if we could just communicate like that until both sides fully understand, then go to agreement, right? Because yeah. first you have to listen, then you have to understand. Only then can you really agree. Well, the other thing too is, well, boy, there's a lot to unpack here. This is a fascinating conversation. So, the highest degree of responsibility in of ownership, not of ownership in communication, is when I take ownership of what you understand that I said. Mm -hmm. That's the highest degree of ownership. Um, but, but great communication is a two-way street. There's what's heard. And there has to be a high degree of ownership on the hearer side as well. And, and life has gotten a lot easier for me when, when I quit trying to ascribe motives to people. Mm -hmm. And and this is a very naive approach to life, okay? It's a very naive approach to life, which anybody that knows me that hears this is going to crack up laughing because <laughs> people think I'm cynical. I don't know where they're getting that. The naive approach is to assume the best in people. And it is naive because there's bad actors out there. But it's a lot simpler in life, right? Yeah. And so when someone says something to me, Usually the clearest path to understand what they're saying is to take it at face value and assume it's coming from the best possible place. So you go, hey, Kevin, we'll go back to your very simple example. Kevin, I like that jacket. Um, the the kind of naive assume the best approach goes, wow, that's kind of Lance to compliment my jacket. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm an old guy. I'm not always sure if I'm stylish anymore. So it's kind of comforting. A young guy goes, hey, man, I like that jacket. That's the naive. Hey, it's a, the dark, cynical question motive, which so many people seem to be in the mood of is, was he trying to subtly dig at me? What's wrong with my jacket? <laughs> is it inappropriate? Was he expecting me to look more business casual? Like, what, 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 what's wrong with my jacket? And mm-hmm. so that's kind of the, and that'll drive you crazy. And it will lead to a lot of misunderstanding because, Again, you have to have the faith that most people, most people are what they say they yeah. are. Man, just hearing you go through that like internal dialogue, like increases my cortisol levels. Like I can feel yeah. them go up. Yeah. It's like, yeah. oh yeah, that's actually very stressful to think through all of that and potentially assign these motives to people. And, and people if, are doing it all the time. Like, just please, think the best. please stop. You're going to kill yourself. Yeah, you're going to kill yourself. And you're going to set up all kinds of misunderstanding. Assume so at at the company that I serve at, we have core values we've established. I think I've shared with you some of this work of the Mm -hmm. process we went through. Um, Much of that work was actually started by a former, former CEO, uh, Bart McCollum, who who did great work in around culture formation. Well, we came out with these core values and that is literally one of our core values in our company. And we were, we are rigorous in the enforcement of it. We assume the best in each other. We assume this quit looking for hidden motives and hidden agendas Assume that what you're hearing, so the great communication is, yes, the the artful, thoughtful communication that is taking into account someone else's language. But then on the other side, that hearer has to receive that without looking for motives, actually looking to understand. I, I think that's an old Covey quote. I think, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Yeah. You know, we come into these these conversations with an agenda I want to advance. Mm-hmm. Um, when people can feel that, though, it makes it very difficult to build rapport and trust. Sure. And frankly, I feel like while all these different cultural things are happening where words are getting more powerful and all that is happening, that has created this like craving that exists culturally right now for authenticity. Oh, I think so. And so when people come in and they have these inauthentic motives, people can feel it. Oh, absolutely. And that feeling is what then can fuel. And so so on my part, because at the end of the day, I can only impact me. I can't change anyone else in the whole world. And that's the first thing I have to accept. So I can't make you a better listener or hearer. All I can do is do my best to be an effective communicator. So if I want to effectively communicate with you, it sounds like one of my responsibility, my first responsibility actually, is to come in with an authentic motive of commu- of wanting to communicate with you and hear you. Yep. And if I'm lacking that, that will create some of the undertones and fuel the potential fire of, well, what is his motive? Why does yeah. he say this? Yeah. Why does Lance like my jacket? Yeah, right? Exactly. Because you don't really, like if my motives are inauthentic, I'm giving voice to that, uh, those questions. Yeah, you're, you're fueling that fire. So I have to control my, my motivations for be engaging in this conversation with you. And particularly as a salesperson, you do have motives. Oh, absolutely. Beyond yeah. rapport. Maybe, maybe. I'll, I'll, I'll give you maybe we, for sure. We can sure. dance with that. Yeah. We can come back to that. But before we do, so, so I'm just... Can, can I do a little deep dive on what Let's you just do. said? Yeah. Okay. So I, I believe in the coaching process. Um, much of my career, as you mentioned, I've been an executive coach. 
So I, I believe in coaching. I've had a coach for a long time. Um, recently had this debate about what makes a person coachable. And I think I've come down, if I had to say it's one thing, it's the ability for someone to tell you in absolute clarity the worst thing about yourself without you getting defensive and with you embracing it and with you um, actually doing something with it. Um, and I had that experience on a couple of times in my life. I had a mentor tell me, and it goes exactly to what you said. He said, Kevin, you're a smart guy. He said, but you are a predator. He said, you go into every conversation. You go into every engagement. He said, I've watched you. He said, I can almost see you licking your chops. What am I going to get out of this? How am I going to leverage this to my advantage? And if it means I leave that other person bleeding out on the floor, so be it. As long as I get mine. Mm. He said, and people sense it. He said, they sense it. They can pick up on it. He said, it's off-putting. He said, that's why you can't establish long-term business relationships. You are going to eviscerate them given the first opportunity, and they know it. Ugh. Oh, it, it was a... It's a kick in the balls. Oh, is it? Brother, it was a gut punch. And what made it such a gut punch is he was 100% right. Yeah. And then he doubled down. He said, and the reason you are, he says, you're terrified. And so you're just out looking out for you. He said, all your professions of faith are meaningless. You're frightened. And so you're just clawing and grasping all the time. Oof. He said, what makes it bad is you're smart enough to cover it to a degree. <sighs> it, was, it, was, it was brutal. That was rough. And he's like, you have to fix that. And that, that put me on a journey for a long time. And like we, we could talk for hours about what that journey was like. And there are days I still feel that old thing in me. But this comes back to your point. How do I come into a conversation and not bring that with me? And I, I needed something. I needed a way to do that. And so this, this technique emerged that, that has helped me. Um, and I've actually taught it to a lot of sellers. Because sellers come in, I call it with commission breath, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> People can smell it. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. man, I know what you're all about. So it's going about maybe, maybe a seller just comes into a conversation with a completely different agenda, but it sets you up for greater success long term. So here's, here's the little device I use literally before every critical conversation I have. It took me a long time to come to this. But I sit down, I make sure, I make sure I've got time before that conversation, it's five minutes. And I ask myself this question, and I ask it out loud, and I ask it with that notepad and a pen in my hand. So I'm gonna meet with Lance. Here's the question. And again, I'm a simple guy. This may put your listeners to sleep. Mm -hmm. What can I give Lance? And let me tell you why this is an important question and why the structure of it is important. That first part, what can I give? 
I'm assuming I have something of value to give. So I'm addressing that own, my own fears and my own inadequacies. Giving yourself value. Yeah, I'm giving, what can I give? I'm walking and thinking, there's something that I can bring to the table here that he can't get anywhere else. And then that word give, I don't have any expectation of return. I'm going to give it to you. And I don't have any expectation. I, and then the last part is Lance. I put the focus on you. Mm. So now when I walk into this critical conversation with you, I walk in confident. I've got something to offer. I walk prepared to give. Something's going to be taken from me. I'm okay with that. I want to give it freely. And by the way, I want to be. And here's where it really works. If I'm asking myself, what can I give Lance? I have to come into this conversation highly focused on you, hearing you. That little device transformed my professional conversations and my personal conversations because it shifts me in my head. And now I'm ready to have this really important conversation. Man, that light. I'm destroying your studio. Now I'm not going to have the cool blue halo. Yeah, it's gone. That's too bad. Sorry. Um, so first of all, I don't think that's boring anyone, but you are right. It's very simple. But the wording you're using, I can see how that that is like a, a mental shift. Yeah. And it's not what can I get? Too what, many, yeah. Well, Too many people walk into every conversation and that's the biggest thought in their head. What can I get? What can I get? The question has to shift. And again, this may seem naive in today's business and climate. I was thinking back, you know, you you texted me yesterday, and I was delighted to hear from you. I reflected, and I, I don't say this in a braggadocious way. I say this to make a point. There's been things I've given you. Like, hey, Lance, here's content. I didn't expect anything back from it. Mm-hmm. Like, and this this goes all the way back to that brutal conversation, you know. Um, my, my mentor actually told me, he said, you go through life like this. Everything you're clutching at it. He said, You're actually choking the life out of some things. Yeah. Because you're squeezing it so hard. And this is simple. He said, If you can go through life like this, you say, Well, people will take things out of my hand. Well, yeah. But then there's room for other things to be put in your hand. And you got listeners right now, the only the reason they only have what they have and all they've had is they've had it so long and there's nothing new is because they're like this, they're clutching everything. If they would kind of approach life and business a little more like this, let people take things out of your hands. It's okay. Other things will get put in them. Mm-hmm. You know, that that reminds me of uh, a couple things. So one's a book I read called Necessary Endings. People, people hate endings a lot of times. They want to hold on. And real, they forget that, you know, a lot of things – First of all, everything is going to leave you in life. You're going to die. You're not going to hold on to anything. Nobody gets out alive. None of us are making it out alive. So it's all going to leave us at at some point. And that's like a tactical way or something that we can do to shift that gear in our head to go from the scarcity mindset, I have to hold on to everything I have, to an abundance mindset of things will be taken, but new will come in. New will come in, yeah. I love it. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And that is, that is the ebb and flow. And, you know, if, if we want to go a little deeper and again, if you are opposed to faith or religion, I guess you skip over this part, but 
I, I think, you know, I, I, I watch these um, kind of prosperity preachers on TV, and it's such a bad construct because kind of the core message is if you have enough faith, whether in God or their ministry usually, uh, you'll get more, right? Yeah. If you have enough faith in God, you'll get more. I think that's completely backwards. How so? Let's say I was ridiculously wealthy. Nice fantasy. I like this <laughs> fantasy. We hang out here for a while. This feels good. And I came and say, Lance, listen. Um, I'm going away. I'm going to take a six-month voyage. Here's fifty million of my dollars. Because you've been a smart business guy, I'm going to trust you with that. Because I've watched you over the years. I've watched your integrity. I've watched your intellect. I've watched how you watch markets. I have faith in you to do the right thing with my money. It wasn't your faith in me that got you the fifty million. It's my faith in you. Mm-hmm. Back to your early conversation. We're not taking any of this with us. We don't actually own anything we have. We are stewards of it for a time. Mm-hmm. We're stewards of it for a time, and people can reject that if they want to. But listen, ain't nobody got a U-Haul going to the graveyard with them. Yep, it's not how it works. Well, I'm going to leave it to my kids. Most wealth in this country occurs within the first two generations and is lost by the third and fourth generation. Go research that, test me on it. Go build a massive fortune thinking your great-great-great-grandkids are never going to have to work. Probably not true. Probably. Oh, most definitely not yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, your third generation is going to spend it all. Yeah. and Because that's why most wealth is built in, in the first two generations. You're not taking it with you. You are a temporary. You are a steward of what you have. You are a manager of what you have. And if the owner, however you phrase that, God, the universe, whatever, if the owner has enough faith in you to do the right thing with their stuff, you will get to manage more of it. Yeah. It's not. A, it's not. Do you have enough faith in God? Is does God have enough faith in you? Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. There endeth the religious lesson for today. I mean, that can go a lot further, too. Yeah. I mean, there's like the parable of the talents. Of course. And that's course. real. It, well, that, it really no, is. Well, there's, there, so there, there's a verse in Scripture that bothered me for years until I realized one day that it wasn't a law being stated. It was a reality being stated. So Jesus, and there's a big difference, right? Mm-hmm. We read these things and say, oh, that's a law. No, it's not a law. He's just telling you a reality. Um. I'll give you an example. Scripture says, liars will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's not a law against lying. There are laws against lying, but that's not a law against lying. It's stating a reality. If you're a liar, you're just, you're on a trajectory that you're not going to go there, right? Yeah. So Jesus says, to him that has, more more will be given. To him that does not have, what he does have will be taken away. I was like, that's horrible. That doesn't seem right. But it's a reality. It is. So so Marx, Karl Marx, um, one of his big criticisms of capitalism 
was that wealth aggregates into fewer and fewer and fewer hands, which is true. Yes, it is. But it also happens under communism. Absolutely, it does. <laughs> Just much, much faster. Mm -hmm. uh, with, with fewer people getting a taste of it along the way. Mm -hmm. um, where both, what both of these systems fail to take into account is you're against a natural law. It just happens. And that, that's why literally under, under Judaism, there was this reset every seven years where you canceled debt, you forgave debt, property reverted back to original owners. This happened. The reason that was there was because you're battling against natural law, that the guy that has will continue to get more and more and more. The guy that doesn't have will have less and less and less over time. I'm not saying it's fair. I'm not saying it's right. Well, it's true. We're seeing it in our society We're right now. We're seeing it in our society right now. And people are screaming about it. It's unjust. And th that's a big debate to be had. But that's not the failure of a system. You 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 see it in nature. Right? Yeah. The, the lion that has three or four lionesses is probably going to go take the one lioness from the poor old lion that only has one. Like yep. that's, that's, that's the way it works. It is. I couldn't agree more. And I feel like a lot of times, uh, frequently people want to ignore all of that because they're atheists. They don't believe in God or whatever. But there's truisms that are, you don't have to attach a spiritual no, meaning. No, no, they transcend it. all that. They, yeah, they absolutely. And I think you're hitting on some of those right now. They transcend all that. Shift, shift gears with me a little bit and yep. um, explain, like... So I love your communication model. I think it's fantastic. I don't want to, uh, I know it's not necessarily proprietary to no. you. You didn't come up with it, sure. but uh, it's a, you know, this training is how you have made a living at times. So times, I don't yeah. want you to ask you to share anything you don't yeah. want to, sure. but um, at whatever level you are okay, breaking this down, break it down for me a little bit. How does this, how does this communication model work? Sure. And, and how can someone apply it? So as I've already said, the, the basic premise is all human beings speak one of a very limited number of what we'll call them languages. Okay? okay. And I like that word because this is not this is not personality profiling. It's not a psychological model. Mm -hmm. um, it's none of that stuff. People are like, oh, I took a disc. Okay, whatever. Um, it's it's none of that. It's literally looking and assuming that all human beings speak one of these very few basic languages. So that's the first component. Okay. The second component is you can identify a person's language through observation. I can watch you communicate. Yes. And say, in high degree of probability, this is the language he speaks. Okay. Okay. So that's the second thing. Once I know those identifying markers, then it's very easy for me to, to shift into your language. And now we have the potential for rapport and clarity in ways we never have before. And the understanding we were talking about earlier, yeah. I mean, that's the clarity. Yeah, it, it, that's the clarity and it, that, that we never had before. And so I can watch somebody communicate, and the longer you use the model, the faster you get at it. Yeah. So it used to take me a while, I would study something, like, okay, this is probably the language. Now I can I can move into that that language much faster. So there's and here's where people get messed up with the model. They get hyper fixated on what language they speak. 
And literally, there's profiling tests you can take that will say, yep, this is it. It doesn't matter. It, and here's why it doesn't matter. The goal is not for me to be better understood by everybody and be more proficient in the language I'm already proficient in. The goal is for me to understand your language and find a way from, to make myself understood in your language. So a good way to think about it is you're, you're a native English speaker. Let's say you were going to spend, um, you know, you were going to spend a year in Japan. So it would make no sense whatsoever to get a big sign that says, I am a native English speaker. Here's the best way to communicate with me in English. Everybody learn English for me while I'm in Japan. That's exactly right. No, no I'm going to Japan. What's really smart is for me to get the most, the quickest, most rudimentary understanding of Japanese I can, and with a lot of respect and a lot of humility, try to make myself understood in their language. And by the way, I've traveled internationally a lot. People actually appreciate it a lot, even if you butcher their language. Oh, absolutely. They, they appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And so you, you've, even if you do it badly, the fact that you've moved towards them buys you a lot of grace. So let's come back to the language model. Um, there's these easily identifiable languages. Uh, you'll see them often called communication styles as well. These easily identifiable styles that people communicate in. And people know when you're trying to move into their world because you're moving out of your comfort zone into theirs. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll unpack a little. There's four. There's only four. Okay. Here's the simplest in my There's only four languages globally. That makes it a lot easier. It's four languages globally. And here's the other thing, and I'm not going to give you any more of the secret sauce than this. To identify anyone's language in this model, you only need two data points. And these data points are based on observable behavior. So I can watch you pick out these two data points, and now I know with a high degree of probability what language you speak. Then if I have the humility... <laughs> And the, and the chops to try to shift into your language, now all of a sudden the possibility for clarity and communication between the two of us goes up exponentially. Yep, and I've, I've used it uh, for years now, and it, it is incredible what it does. And yeah. some, oftentimes, now I don't even realize I'm doing it. No, it, it gets ingrained. It's totally. Like it becomes part of, you become... It's not bilingual. It's like quadlingual. Yeah. But you can speak these other languages. Multilingual. Yeah, I can speak these other languages, and I'm not great at it, but I can I can shift into these other languages, and I feel like one's ability to do that, particularly in sales, is going to directly impact oh, sure. how proficient you are at selling. Oh, like sure. The guy, when you walk into, uh, like I've walked into uh, car dealerships, they say they have 30 sales guys, mm -hmm. and they have these guys ranked out on a spreadsheet. And they've got number one because his closing ratio is 50%. That means of everybody who walks through the door, he closes every other one. Mm -hmm. And then the next guy is 30%. Mm -hmm. And then the next guy is 22%. And most, got, most everyone in there is between 10 and 22. And so those guys are closing one in 10 versus the one in two. And I remember seeing, I, I saw this at some dealership I went into, and I remember seeing that and being like, what's the difference between this guy and the rest? Yeah. And after I had your training, I was like, that's the difference. Yeah. It's how good you are at going from whatever language you speak yep. into the 
identifying the language they're speaking yep. and then speaking it. Yeah. So, so the other the other interesting thing about that model is, and I, I always say this at, at the first part of the training, right, is I'm not going to tell you anything new. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to show you a reality that already exists. So I always use the example of corrective eyewear, right? Like, I don't know if you do you wear contact no, lenses or anything. All. So anybody that's ever worn this or does knows the experience. Like you don't realize how bad your eyes have gotten until you get that first prescription. Yeah. And then you put it on, you go, holy crap, that's what the world actually looks like. Yeah. It's amazing. So that's kind of what happens when I do this training. I'm just showing you a reality that already exists, right? I'm not giving you something new. This, this is a framework that lays over what you're already experiencing. And so that sales guy that's closing one and two, he's using this even without training probably. It's intuitive Absolutely. because this is how human beings communicate. What this model does is it brings a level of intentionality to what for most people is just intuitive. There are people that are intuitively and instinctively great communicators. Uh, and there are factors that determine that. So one, one of the things we see if someone is already multilingual, as in they speak German, English, French, if they've grown up in a variety of different cultures, they're already a lot more flexible. Absolutely. And and you see that interpret it run through all their communication. Um, those people tend to do better in those roles because they can adapt and adjust on the fly as opposed to someone that's had a much more kind of monoculture experience growing up and they're really uncomfortable outside of that little comfort zone. I never thought of it like that. And that is spot on, man, because your ability to transition into those other languages directly coincides with your willingness and ability to step outside of your comfort yeah. zone. Yeah, yeah. And when you're forced into another culture for a period of time, yeah. you just live outside of your comfort yeah, that's right. zone. That's right. And once you've lived in it, you're real comfortable yeah. being outside yeah. of it because yeah. you're not even used to being in it ever. Right. And that creates your, this ability to to relate to just dramatically more people. Yeah. And that relation, that rapport that's built is typically the foundation of a sale because people do business with people like they like, people they know, yep. and people they trust. Yep. And trying to do business with everyone you know is tough. So really you got to figure out how to how to build likability and trust. Yep. And typically you don't like people you don't trust. So really at the end of the day, you got to figure out how can I build trust yep. quickly? Yep. And when you're speaking their language and you're stepping into their comfort zone, that's going to build trust with whoever you're working with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so if you kind of go back to that model, if you assume it's true that there are these four core languages um, and you're really adept in, in your native language, right? Mm -hmm. If that's the only one you're good at, what percentage of the time are you an effective communicator? 25%. Do you know what's considered a decent average closing rate for most B2B sales? I don't. 25%. Okay. So Makes sense. Yeah. You're able like, to close the people who speak the same language you, as you. You're closing the people. And so you'll see, you'll see sales, and I've, I've worked with a lot of sales professionals across a lot of industries. And yeah, you know, I do okay. I've got about a 25% close rate, respectable. It's enough to keep you from getting fired. Yeah. You're never going to rule the world, but hey, you can keep your job. So you're selling with people that speak your language. You've you've never bothered to try to get outside of your own little comfort zone, 
and and you can watch it. So so, so one of the organizations I I did a ton of work with, their salespeople primarily sold to um, benefits brokers. So a broker out there that helps you design the benefits plan for your company. Um, so I would go on the road with these guys, and it was remarkable how often the broker that they did the most business with was the most like them. You get some guy that's uber gregarious and, you know, uh, super outgoing and um, big high-level idea, high energy. All the brokers he, he had the most business with were all just like him. Get another guy that's much more serious and much more data driven, and all his primary brokers be very much like him. Um, it was startling, and I realized they're not transcending their own language. Yeah, they're, they're not. And and listen, some people. So so that ability to shift between we call it versatility. So your language is your language. You're always going to speak your language. That's always going to be your native language. What can increase over time with knowledge, with with training, with coaching, is your versatility. So people, like I already said, people that kind of grow up in multiple cultures, they're already multilingual. Um, also, if you look at big five trait theory, people that register higher on in trait openness um, also tend to ju- just kind of innately be more versatile. They have higher degrees of versatility. They shift into these other languages. For other people, it's very, very hard. Very hard. They're not. They're just not versatile. So we we talk about these people as either high or low versatility. Um, some people are innately high versatility. They shift like this, even without training. They will pick That's up. That's that fifty percent guy. Yeah, is the guy. He's yeah. naturally versatile, so he can Absolutely. shift around. Absolutely. He's good at recognizing it. Yeah. And can shift most, into most it. Most sociopaths, coincidentally, are pretty highly versatile as well. Oh, I'm not sure what that <laughs> says, but. Uh, Oh, but you, Lance, and I've, I've, like you said, we've known each other six years now. Um, I would not say that you're innately, innately highly versatile. I think your versatility has been a product of discipline. I've learned it and learning. Yeah. Absolutely, it, it's it's not comfortable no, for you. No, it's yeah. not. I like. I probably register somewhere on the autism spectrum. Like <laughs> going out and being social isn't my thing. Yeah. Like. Uh, it's uncomfortable for me, but once I shift my mind into that mode, I can yeah. be very good at it. Yeah. But it's not it's not learned. natural. I learned that and I forced it out of myself yeah. basically. And 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 anybody can. Absolutely. You know, anybody can. I, I I've done this training, bro. Okay, well, it's just not me. I just can't do that. No, you don't want to. Yeah. That's okay. But it's, understand you're limiting yourself and and you just don't want to. It's a product of hard work at the end of the day. Sure. Like for, for my, my personal belief on sales is there's, there's two pieces to sales. There is hard work and there's skill set. Yeah. And skill set, some people have an incredible talent for that skill set. They don't need to, I mean, they can always improve it, right? But if you have that skill set and you lack hard work, it doesn't matter. You, you can do good, yeah. right? You can get by in it like, yeah, but you're never gonna be amazing. No. Just like, like Kobe Bryant, I think everyone would agree. He yeah. has talent. He has sure. skill, right? He had this yeah. natural talent, but yeah. he was also Worked very hardworking. Yeah. Worked his head off, absolutely. And so it, with that combination, then you become unstoppable. Well, and part of the hard work that I think top-level sellers must be doing is to increase that skill stack. 
Absolutely. So That's part of the job. You mentioned Kobe Bryant here in Dallas. We have Dirk Nowitzki. Yeah, sorry. We, my bad. We, I should have. Dirk yes. Nowitzki, yeah. We love the big German here. Yes. Um, but in, in, the, in the prime of his career, every offseason, he would bring in a coach to help him work with a aspect of his game that needed strengthening. He was always increasing his skill stack. And I, I think the best sellers I've ever worked with, they're always doing this. You know, so I, I, as you said, part of my personal business, I do an executive coaching. And I've worked with a lot of very high-end salespeople. And that, that is a key care. They're always, what else can I add to my skill stack? And it's not an infinite stack in the sales career. You've got to be good at persuasion. You've got to be good at negotiation. You've got to be good at communication. But here, you've got to be good at product knowledge. But here's the thing. You can go a mile deep in any one oh, of those yeah. things and get true mastery. And so these the, the top-line sellers are always looking at, what is that part of my skill stack that, that is not as proficient as it could be, and what can I do to add to it? And they're, they're just – another interesting component of it, too, is understanding when you're deciding, what do I need to add to my skill stack? What kind of sales am I doing? Mm-hmm. I think there's three kinds of sales. Um, or actually three, three models of sales, three ways of thinking about it. Okay. okay. This is my own theory. Everybody, I like your theories. Okay, That's well, a- this is the theory. Um, when I when I work with organizations to develop their sales and marketing strategy, the first thing I try to figure out is which of these three they are. Okay. So there, and I will go from kind of the least technical to the most technical. So the first model is sales as mining. Selling is mining. Mining is a pretty simple proposition for stuff for, for, for heavy metals, minerals. We are going to move as much ore as possible in the hopes that there is a gold nugget in there. Yep. And I know if I'm, I may have to move this entire mountain, but I will walk away and it may be a nugget the size of my pinky. But if I move enough ore, there's something in there. Mm-hmm. So this is. This is the guy that knocks on your door trying to sell you solar panels. Yeah. Okay. He's mining. Yep. If I knock on enough doors, somebody's going to let me quote them a bid to put solar panels on their house. So it's selling as mining. It's a volume game. It's these it, it, guys it's who exactly just, they right. do tremendous, they touch exactly thousands right. of people and they walk away with one out of the thousands. That's right. It's selling as mining. Yeah. That's it. Your next model is selling as farming. So I have, I'm going to plan, I'm going to prepare the field. I'm going to plow the field. That is market knowledge. It's market research. It's getting to know the market. It's getting to know all the players in the market. Uh, It's establishing those relationships and nurturing them. And then I'm going to start planning product knowledge. And over time, I will get a harvest. And the, the cool thing is I'm going to build a repeat. This is how you know you're farming and not mining is once I get that relationship established, I can keep coming back to it over and over and over. Like pharmaceutical sales. That's exactly right. It's pharmaceutical sales. That's a great model of farming. I'm going to establish a relationship with these doctors, and I'm going to keep coming back, and I'm going to cultivate that, and I'm going to keep giving them product knowledge, and I'm going to keep educating their staff, and over time they're just going to buy from me, buy from me, buy from me. Mm-hmm. So there's they're selling as farming. And then the final model, and, and this one is particularly uh, – 
particularly, uh, I'm fond of this because I am a hunter. They're selling us hunting. And this is, it's, it's unlike farming in that I'm probably not going to just get continual revenue, but I can learn where my game is likely to be, and I can learn how to stalk it, and I can learn how to bring it down. And this, these are your guys that are selling seven-figure ERP solutions. Uh, they're selling massive real estate deals. Am I going to sell? Am I going to sell a seven-figure ERP system to the same company year after year after year? No, but I'm going to learn where those guys move. I'm going to learn where my quarry moves. I'm going to learn what draws them in. I'm going to learn how to not spook them. I'm going to learn how to bring them, bring it in. So they're selling as mining. They're selling as farming. They're selling as hunting, and it's a different skill stack at each one of those. Totally. There are some skill stacks that transcend. Yeah, all I, of I would say like what you'd mentioned earlier. Um, about communication, negotiation, all that, that persuasion, th those transcend. Those are it. across all, but yeah. the hard work and skill set, like th the hard work, is going to apply way more to the miner. Like you've got to just be willing maybe. to run. Well, maybe yeah, typically, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know some. that a miner works any harder than a farmer. And I've hunted, brother. I've that's I've, true. I've it's all hard work because you it's can. All hard. Yeah, you it's can. It's just different. Mm -hmm. It's different kinds of work. It's like the, there's a, it's all mentally tough. Yeah. The, the hunter, so the miner has to be, ah, I'm like trying to piece this together because I like it. I, I think you're right. The miner has, to, it, it, you got to be good with a lot of, you, you got to be good with a lot of rejection as a miner. Oh yeah. It, it's not going to surprise you. To the know farmer's got to be okay with some storms coming through. Yep. And occasional seasons of yep. drought. Yep. That's going to happen. I was talking to a sales leader yesterday who's leading a team of farmers and he knows they're farmers. And he's frustrated because they're in a drought right now. Like, dude, it, it's seasonal. It happens. Mm -hmm. Keep plowing. Keep planting. Keep nurturing. Harvest will come. Harvest will come. Yeah. Um, no, it, it, it's it's it is mental, but it's a different mindset at every level. You know, one of, one of the quotes I read about mining. There's a guy I follow on Twitter. I think his name is Pettimore. He's actually a hard. He's he's a deep deep rock hard miner, and it's fascinating just all the stuff he posts. But he said something to the effect that, if I got this right, and I was like, this is sales, right? This is, in mining, you're always either an inch away from a million dollars worth of gold or a million miles away from an inch of gold. Like, <laughs> that is sales, man. Yeah. Like, uh, and that's why, listen, I, first of all, I think I think sellers get a bad rap. Absolutely. Yeah, sellers get a bad rap. And, and what I wish... Everywhere is if people aren't if somebody's not selling something, the whole thing grinds to a halt, right? Yeah, the, I mean, sales <laughs> drives everything. It drives right? everything. Uh, so I, I'm a big fan of salespeople, and especially people that, especially salespeople who are those committed professionals. Like they they take enormous pride. So a little bagel shop by my house I used to go in every morning. There was this guy who was always in there, and whenever you go in the morning, I'm like, hey, you know, I, I kind of have this rule: if I see someone. Three times in the same place, I should probably introduce myself because we move in the same circle. And I introduced myself, hey, I'm Kevin. And he goes, hey. And I said, so what do you do? And I swear he drew himself up just about. He said, I have been a industry-leading sales professional for 40 years. And there was so much pride. And this guy sold office supplies. But mm. there was so much pride in it. I was like, man, that's... 
that's everything. You know? Yeah, that's everything. I, I I love salespeople. I think they they get a bad rap. Um, but yeah, you're you're either mining, you're farming, or you're hunting, and you need to know what your organization's doing if you're really going to provide effective sales leadership to them. Because I I go into organizations now and I'm like, um, you got a bunch of hunters and you're trying to manage them like miners. Totally. And, you know. I think so. With in in my business, I think there's. If I had to nail us, I'd say we're miners. That's that's, sure. that's that's most of what we do, sure. but we occasionally end up doing some farming, and we occasionally end up doing some hunting too. There will be some. We bump over. into it, you know. Yeah, there, yeah. There's some overlap, but most, but you know, at the core, we're miners. But, and, and I and I think smart businesses that have the luxury, you you develop those competencies. So, if I was you, I'd be watching my sales team to so, show. Because there's probably somebody there's probably a good hunter. Mm-hmm. In their heart of hearts, they're a hunter. They're mining because they needed a job. Yeah. But they'd rather be hunting. And if you have occasional hunts, I'd start cultivating them towards that. Yeah. You know? For us, hunts are like when we, you know, typically we buy homes. Yeah. You know, and typically the homes are 50,000 to 500,000. Yep. That, that's our, and we reach out to thousands of sellers and we end up buying the one house. Right. Right. So, because uh, we're buying at a discount, we're doing yep. all these different things. Right. So, so we're mostly mining. I think your people call me like five times a day wanting to buy my Probably. house. Probably. It's not necessarily my people, but yeah, yeah, us people, us <laughs> yeah. folk, us yeah. home buyer folk. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, we're doing our mining. Then you've got, we get these these occasional sellers, we're mining for them, and we bump into them, and that seller ends up selling us home after home yep. after home. And, you know, they're, they're a boomer, and yep. we have this repeat relationship with them where we touch back again, yep. and they've got 40 homes, and we're buying them one at a time. Sometimes they also want to sell them all at once. Yeah. So then that's more of a hunter where we're like so, going after this guy. So if I if I use the construct for your business, I would say those people exist out there. We need to be hunting them all the time. Those whales, basically. Those, whales. those big be, deals. Yeah, we need mm-hmm. to be hunting them. And that's a different skill set than a miner. 100%. That's a different skill set. It's a relationship. You're building a relationship yeah. and you're, you're in it for the long game. Well, and it's not only... Really, it's not just building that relationship. It's also knowing where to look and how to look for them. You don't look for them the same way you look for the guy that, Mm-mm. you know, I'm tired of my house. My kid lives in, my kid lives in Ohio. I want to sell it and retire and go live by him. And you're never going to see him again. You don't look for him the same way. How do I look for these people? Where do they hang out? Yep. So, so that's a, t- or how do I draw them in? Cause there are different kinds of hunting. Totally. So I, my preferred form of hunting is, Draw them in. Well, my preferred form is I like to stalk. I like, you know, you, you, that, that, you know, They're in that the mule deer parts. is out there somewhere in those 3,000 acres and I'm going to stalk him down and try to get myself positioned. But then there is the hunting where I, I draw them in, right? And there are two different modes. That's why you can go, you can go a mile deep on each one of these as yeah, well. Yeah, geez. Absolutely you can. No, I, I really like it though. I think that, there's a lot to be said for this and identifying which one you're doing. It's going to totally change your sales and marketing strategies. Of course. Of course. Of course. And it's going to change how you hire. It's going to change. So, so I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a trap that sales leaders get in. So we got to hire a new seller. This guy's a rock star. He's got this huge book of business. He's got on all these great things. Well, what if you're hiring a hunter when you really need a good farmer? Mm-hmm. I actually did that 
in my career. Hired a guy who was a he was a killer man. He was the best in the industry. But I found I figured out later he's a hunter and I need a team of farmers. And he caused chaos in the organization and we caused unbelievable pain for him. I wound up having to fire this guy. It's one of the, I, it's one of the worst things I've ever done in my career. I should have never hired him. That was on me because I brought a hunter into a farming system. So it even affects how you hire. Absolutely. Now, like I'm thinking back through everyone I've ever hired and I'm like, what was I doing with that guy or this? Because <laughs> right. it's like they were, we were mining at the time and, yep. and he, yeah. 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 Well, thanks for sure. opening up this can of worms sure. for me. Sure. <laughs> it's, it's always been there. I just didn't know yeah. it was even no, there. So there, yeah. now I'm going to. Yeah, freaking yeah. That's great though. Um so so we've got these different models we can from from how to sell, we can go really deep on how to communicate because really what your model teaches with communication, it's it's that communication piece. Yeah, it's a communication piece. There's a negotiation piece. Yep. There's a, a persuasion piece. Yep. There's all these different pieces in sales and there's all these different styles of selling. There's, how how does someone get really you can't get really good at all of it. So what do you do? How do you, how do you dial all, in? First of all, I think you can get really good at all of it. You can. Oh yeah, I think so. There are sellers that, that are like they're they're fantastic. They've got um, versatility across these communication styles. Yep. They're also great. across they're great all at of persuasion. that persuasion. They're great. I I think it's this ongoing. So Scott Adams does a lot of talk about skill stack, right? Got to build a skill stack. Um. I I think it starts with understanding what is a good sales skill stack. Right. So I think communication is the foundation. Agreed. And then product knowledge or knowledge in your specific field. Like I'm a pretty good communicator. I mean, I should be. I teach it. Um, I, I, I train trial lawyers how to win persuasive arguments. So I'm a pretty good storyteller. I'm a pretty good persuader. You can take everything I know about real estate and put it on the head of a pen and have plenty of room left over. <laughs> so your worst communicator on your team could probably outsell me in that arena yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. So so you got to know your product and your market. So it's communication, it's that knowledge of product and market. But then persuasion, negotiation. There there is both an art and a science to negotiation. You mentioned earlier about the miners that handle a lot of rejection. Well, anybody in sales is going to handle a lot of rejection. So how do you navigate re rejection? How do you understand and think about rejection? That is a skill stack in and of itself. Um, one of the conversations you and I had, I don't think we ever came back and actually did training with your team on it, was, was around this. There, so the bad news for sellers is there's a universe of rejections. The good news is it's a finite universe and it's already been mapped. So how many how many people do you have on your team now, Lance? We have uh, four acquisition guys and we have three like lead managers okay. tee up deals for them. So, so given the length of time you've been in the industry and the number of people you have working for you, you've already heard every possible rejection that there is. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Not only that, you've already successfully overcome every one of those rejections. Yep. Have you ever sat down with your team and said, guys, let's map out all the rejections we hear 
And then let's map out how we won against them every time. No. So if you do that little exercise, it'll take you a minute. But if you do it, the next time you bring somebody new onto the team, they don't have to go. Because this is what I find. We bring a new seller on the team. Now they got to go figure out what is the universe of rejection for this industry? Mm-hmm. How do I overcome them? That can be years depending on the industry. And, and then about the time they get proficient at it, they're so burned out that they go move off and do something else. You could literally hand them a playbook day one. Listen, we know based on our time in the industry, here's all the rejections you're going to hear. Here's how we've won against those rejections. Go forth and conquer. So this is like, these are like the concerns people raise, right? Yeah. This is the this is the objections. The objections. So we're overcoming objections. Yep. Okay, yeah. Yep, objections. That's a better way to put it than rejections. That's it. You're overcoming objections, and you've already done it. Yeah. So just map it. And and by the way, let's say in your industry, I'm just going to make something up. And I've actually mapped out the universe of objections. There's basically like 12 big categories that everything falls into. Mm-hmm. And there are universal ways to get over all of them. Um, so there's price objections. There's um, timing objections. Timing objections. All the big, and then there are things that are very industry specific. On your team, let's say there's six that just reoccur over and over and over. You may have one person that is really adept at overcoming two of them. You may have another person that's really adept, really really adept at overcoming the remainder. Cross pollinate that knowledge. Mm-hmm. And map out that universe of objections that you face within your industry. Map it out, know what it is, and know how to counter it. And you'll see your win rate go up dramatically. And you'll see people's, the arc of their sales career go up much faster. Much sooner, yeah. That's, because they're not having to learn this stuff. Mm-hmm. That totally makes sense. It, 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 that is a lot of work to map it all out. But I, I agree yeah. that that would be time majorly well beneficial. Yeah. 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 Time well spent. So... How do you, I mean, so you get these these six to 12 objection categories, and then each one of those will have six to 12 probably subcategories inside of them, and you just create a, a map of all this. Yep. And, then, and then I've also noticed that, so if we take the communication style yep. and we'd apply it to these objections, you, then you, you really have, faster. yeah, you really have four ways to overcome each objection yep. based on the communication style that that seller has. Absolutely. And, and each of those yeah. languages have their own objections built into them. Mm-hmm. And once you understand that, like you will cut, you'll cut a significant percentage of that out just by having the communication model as your foundation. Yeah. It's like understanding that the, for example, the analytical individual, they want to know the specs. That's right. You give them the specs and you're speaking their language. You're yeah. selling them what they you're want to there. hear. And when you can identify that that's what they need to hear and you're giving it to them, you're going to cut out a tremendous amount that's of exactly those objections. Right. That's exactly so it's right. like there are four for each of these, which then goes from you know, 12 major objections and 48 ways to overcome those 12 to really it's like, well, once you identify that yep. they're that language, you're not looking at 12 anymore. You're probably looking at three or four. Yep. And then for all three or four of those, yep. that spec yep. for that example yep. is the way to overcome it when yep. you can more Absolutely. effectively communicate those specs. Absolutely. And kind of going back to, to kind of your original question, like the, the proficiency of a sales professional, right? Um, it, it's this lifelong pursuit oh, of yeah. adding to that skill stack 
and then the proficiency within each of those skill stacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and here's the other thing too. I, so we'll get a little personal and hopefully, hopefully not, not emotional. Um, tomorrow morning I'm taking my son to the airport, putting him on a plane to Idaho where he's going to go start his new life and career. Oof. Uh, yeah. Uh, he graduated from UTD as a mechanical engineer and he's going to work for Naval Nuclear Laboratories. They have a big that's research. Cool. F- yeah, it's pretty cool. And he's also living in my favorite spot on the planet. So yeah. um, I'm super happy for him. going to miss him like crazy. Um, and he's going to go be an engineer. And God bless him. He's way smarter than his old man. Mm-hmm. Like he had to have gotten his brains from his mom because he didn't get that from me. Um, but, you know, we're, we're kind of having this. We're laying in the pool the other day. Like, I'm savoring every minute, right? Because he's, yeah. he's about to be gone. And he's like, Dad, you know, just talking about his career, about his life. And suddenly it, it occurred to me, like, this communication model, he's heard that for years. Yes. Literally, we would watch movies, and I'd be like, okay, tell me what language they're speaking. And mm-hmm. you know, he'd be like, Dad, let's let me enjoy the movie. I'm like, no, you tell me. <laughs> uh, well, you're about to figure it. He's about to learn how important all that is. Oh, Absolutely. I wish I had taught him to sell. Mm. I wish I had taught him to sell. Why do you say that? Because it's so universal. It's so universal. People look down their nose at salespeople. The next time you're trying to advocate for something that you really think is a priority within your organization and you're not getting anywhere, you could use some scale, some sales chops. Yeah, you could. Um I, I, in the organization that I, I serve, that I'm privileged to serve as a leader in, I'm watching a couple young people emerge as executive leaders. And, and it's an amazing thing to watch. And some of them have kind of come up the rough side of the mountain, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> I, um, made it a lot harder on themselves than they had to. And what I'm, you know, and so I was having this conversation. So kind of the way it works is each of these, each company within our holding company have their CEO or their their lead executive. And I was talking to one of them. She's an amazing leader. We were talking about one of these young people that they're finding their executive voice. And I said, you know what I realized? They're becoming a sales professional. Mm. They're becoming excellent at persuasion. They're understanding the value of deep product knowledge and how to communicate it. They're becoming great negotiators. Three years ago, they were this charging bull that's going to crush everything in their path. And now they're, they're, they're seeing that I have to build collaboration. They're seeing that I can't talk to Lance the same way I talk to Kevin. They're two different people. They communicate. All of the things that make a great seller is now being embodied in this young executive and it's emerging I think sales, the ability to sell, is so universal. If, if you're an executive or an executive leader or a sales professional and you never read Pinkerton's book, To Sell as Human, you should go buy it. Uh, it kind of speaks to what I'm saying. It's such a universal skill set. Um, it, it, will, it will be transformative within a career. I couldn't agree more. I mean, your ability to sell a product is going to directly coincide with your ability to sell yourself. Sell an idea. Yeah. Sell an idea. Sell, sell a belief. Yeah. Like those, 
if you want those to be communicated and people to hear you and to be able to effectuate change in organization, in our country, yeah. I mean, politicians, what are they? But salespeople yeah. at the end of the day, they're selling their platform. Yeah. So I agree with you. I see why you, it is, why do you think it hit you in the pool two days ago with your son? Because he's of, leaving. Yeah. And I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm wondering what all I missed as a yeah. dad. Yeah. Like you, you, you come to this moment, you're like, well, I, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to stop being a dad. Yeah, but well, I think you told me, and this is this is some great advice, and I I haven't actually acted on it, but it, it's been in my mind since. I, I think it was you, but uh, you said to take uh, take two large glass jars and put, I think it was marbles or something in them, and or, or, or something. Well, get, so get a jar, get a jar for every kid. Yep, and then it's like the weekends. Figure right? out figure out how many weekends you'll have with them if they leave home around 18 or 20. Yeah. Add it up. Do the math. It's not hard. 50 times years. Yeah, yep. exactly. Pretty Sim- easy. Pretty simple. You can get it done. Go buy that many marbles. Now, I do all my weekly planning on Sunday evening. So as you're planning your week, you reflect back over the previous week and think about the time you did or did not spend with your kids. Mm-hmm. Take a marble out, throw it away. And in light of that, plan the week. Yeah. Um, that jar gets empty. Whew. Really, really fast. Yeah. Really, yep. really fast. And when you get down to where you can hold all those marbles, i tell you something that hit me. A friend of mine told me this. He's kind of in the same place. His kid's moving off. She's moving to the East Coast. He's a little older than me. So he said, let's say, Kevin, I live to 80. He's 55 when this conversation happens. Let's say I live to 80, which... It's 25 years. Yeah. He said, if I see her holidays and maybe vacation, I'm only going to see my kid 50 more times in her life. Yeah. That's a really tiny number. Mm-hmm. I, I hear you. I'm, I'm, I'm 36 and I had this real, that realization actually today a little bit. So, um, today, I was saying goodbye to my daughter, I walked her to school, said goodbye, and she's going to her mom's for the weekend, and she has camp next week. And I'm like, I'm not going to see her for right. 11 days. And I'm like, I better start getting used to this because she's 11 years old right now. 11 becomes 18 real quick. And uh, she thinks she's 15 already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like once they once that starts and once they th- – th- there's a tipping point with kids where they love you, they love you, they love you. I don't want to say they hate you, but they they, they don't they don't desire your constant if you do your companionship. Job right, they will hate you at moments. Yes, they will. Yeah. They will for sure. But they, they don't want that constant companionship. Like when they're young, they always want to be with you, yeah. and you kind of like, oh, give me my space. Yeah. But then it goes away. It's like, yeah. oh. Well, here's the thing. It, it does, but then it comes back. And I, I'm happy to say, you know, both my sons are in their 20s, and if they don't like hanging out with their old man, they they at least fake it really, really well. You yeah. know, um, we, we, we take vacations. We've, we've taken vacations together. We've done a ton of stuff together. And my son, even now he's like, dad, are you coming to visit now? Are you coming to visit then? We're planning hiking trips out in awesome. know, Grand Teton, all this stuff. So yeah. I, I heard that it's biological. So when kids reach essentially puberty and they become able to have children at that age, they're actually trained. It's, it's biologically sure. innate to hate your parents, to hate your tribe. You have to hate them. And the reason for that is you shouldn't mate with them. So you need to go and find another yeah, tribe to mate with. 
So makes you don't sense. get a bunch of handicaps, yeah, right? Makes sense. Like you, you, makes you sense. need to keep the genetic pool fresh. Yeah, yeah, and so sense. they hate you for that pubescent time. Yeah. And then once that ends, that's why in their twenties, they love you again. Yeah. But yeah. there's that time from, you know, 13 yeah, yeah, to 20 yeah. ish where yeah. you're probably not their favorite person. I know this, I know this. When I hit about 13, 14, my parents became amazingly ignorant and then when I left home and got into my 20s, they became geniuses. Yeah. <laughs> like it was really amazing how they, how yeah. smart they got when I left home. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it totally turns true. out, turns out, um, yeah, no, that makes total sense. Yeah. Well, Kevin, it's been great talking with you. Where can people find more about you, get some executive coaching from uh, you, learn more about your models? KBurgessolutions.com, all one word, KBurgessolutions.com. We'll link that in the show notes. Yep. Or uh, look me up on LinkedIn, Kevin Burgess, uh, CMO at AE Perkins. So okay. you can hit me up on, on LinkedIn. I'd love to have a conversation. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming My out. My pleasure. It's great talking to you. It's Thanks always a pleasure. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. <laughs>